If you're looking for a partner to help you with marketing, I highly recommend you reach out to Andrew Lowen at Next Level Web. In the last year, Andrew and his company have helped board game creators raise more than $2 million on Kickstarter, and 91% of those campaigns funded in the first 24 hours, and 74% of those campaigns were from first-time creators. They have a system that works and offer solutions ranging from helping you build ads for your project all the way to fully managing your marketing campaign. So if you're looking for a reliable marketing partner for your upcoming campaign, visit nextlevelweb.com slash kickstarter and fill out a contact form. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com. Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab podcast, a proud member of the Dice Tower Network. Each week, we want to bring you an insightful interview on a specific topic in board game design to help you design and create games people love. And now, here's your host, Gabe Barrett. What's up, my friends? Welcome to the Board Game Design Lab. Today, we're going Euro. We're talking about Euro games. What does it look like to design a Euro game? And we're talking to one of the masters, one of the, the people that would be on the Mount Rushmore of Euro game design, Martin Wallace. Martin, welcome to the show. Oh, hi, Gabe. Uh, thank you for the introduction. It's very nice um, of you. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I'm Martin Wallace. I'm a board game designer. I've been around for quite a while now. So, I suppose, yeah, well known games would be things like Brass, Age of Steam, Stroke Steam, A Few Acres of Snow. Um, yeah, quite a few games. Yeah, absolutely. I was looking at your Board Game Geek listing just a moment ago before we, we hit record, and you have 128 listings, and now that's games and expansions and second editions and promos and all that, but still, 128, sir, is a crazy amount, and it looks like your your first notable game, according to BGG, is from 1993, so you have been yes. doing this for uh, many moons, you might say. And so yes. how did you get into game design and, and kind of tell me your kind of origin story, the, the brief version. We don't have to go through, you know, 40 years of, of anything, but give me kind of the brief uh, version of how you got into game design. Um, I mean, as, as, as a kid, I was very much into games. Uh, I was also into military history. So as a teenager, I got into war gaming. Uh, I had a teacher at school who ran a gaming club. So I got into figure gaming and then war gaming, um, starting with games from uh, SPI. Uh, then at college, I got into role playing because Dungeons and Dragons had just appeared in the UK. Um, then I got a job working at Games Workshop when they first started, when they first opened a shop in Manchester in the UK. So that that was a, a good education because that was back in the days when Games Workshop did all types of games. Not They, they hadn't turned to the evil side of just doing Warhammer then. Um, then I kind of drifted away from gaming for a while, had no idea about being a game designer. I think it was about when I got to like 29, 30, I don't know, there's like a switch inside of me went, Oh, it'd be really cool to design games. Um, that, that, that's when I actively started designing games. Um, I think I, I had this stupid idea. I thought there might be money in it. Um, but not as much as you think. Um, and then, yeah, just stuck it out and eventually came up with a game, Lords of Creation, which worked well enough that people wanted to play it more than once. And that, that was the, well, I self-published it with a friend and that, that, that's what started the ball rolling and have been, um, yeah, designing games ever since. Very cool. And not only have you designed games, you've also been a publisher and put out lots of games yourself. And I'm really curious, before we get into the topic, 
I'm curious about your perspective on where games have come, where the gaming industry has come from in the you know early 90s, kind of when you first got going, all the way up until now. Give me your perspective as far as like where things have been, where things are, and where do you think they're headed? Um, well, things have changed massively from when I first started designing games. Um, you know, when, back in the 90s, there were very few publishers who were kind of doing these heavier euro style games there was no real market for those games so there wasn't a lot of competition so it's pretty easy to put something out and you know do okay um now as you know that the market is absolutely glutted with games mostly because of kickstarter uh, i think kickstarter has fundamentally transformed the games market um both in positive and negative ways. Uh, so, and also, uh, it's one of those interesting things. Back in the 90s, when uh, computer games were, were becoming a thing, lots of people felt that computer games would be the death of board gaming. And it's actually been the reverse, in that the, the, you know, the advances in computer technology, uh, specifically email and stuff like that, has suddenly allowed this global gaming community to be created, which means that, um, that, that which I think has contributed to the growth and popularity of games. So it seems to me board games are more popular than ever. I mean, until COVID hit, you could see that from the attendance at shows such as, you know, the Essen show had been growing, Gen Con had been growing, more and more games conventions starting around the world. Um, so, you know, the market has been exploding, uh, which is great. Um, the downside is competition has never been higher in that it, it's so much tougher to compete against this kind of flood of games that comes out every week. Um, so, yeah, it, it's Things have changed massively. Um, it's still nice, though, that although, yes, you have bigger companies, I mean, Asmodee being the, the prime example, but it's still a business where individuals can make a difference. I mean, if you go back to computer gaming, only the big boys can compete. You know, only those companies that have, can afford to spend millions of dollars on development can afford to put product out. Whereas the nice thing with board gaming, via things like Kickstarter, you still have room for those individuals, those one-man bands, um, like Isaac Childra, um, Cold World, people like that, who can put stuff out and get it marketed, because you you know you've got a different way to the marketplace. You you don't need these big companies pouring lots of money into product. Um, so yeah, that's kind of general overview. I think where game design is going, myself, my personal feeling is, I think. The kind of old Euro style game, I I feel that's becoming a little bit dated. It seems to me a lot more games now are influenced by an American, the Meritrash style, where story is becoming more important, um, which I personally think is a good thing. I, I kind of getting very bored with these kind of dry Euro games. Um, they just don't seem to be adding a lot. It just seems to be reworking old ideas over and over again. But yeah, we, we live in a golden age, definitely a golden age of board games. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that actually leads perfectly into the follow-up question of how have you seen the Euro game change over the years? So you just mentioned now there, there's more story, you know, things, the games have been influenced by kind of the American culture, American style. Uh, more specifically, though, what, what have you seen? Have you noticed that maybe games have gotten a little bit shorter or games have gotten a little bit more, maybe, maybe easier to understand or a little bit more accessible? Like, what have you noticed in the Euro specific category, you know, uh, as far as like changes over the years? Ooh, um, it's if you if you just limit yourself to the Euro game, I think in certain respects you could say, well, things really haven't changed a lot. Um, I mean, where things are changing is the fact you know you've got this plethora of games now which have lots of uh, plastic pieces, you know, wonderful art production um, and stuff like that. You know, you've got campaign games there's a lot more getting you know you've got your legacy games um and some of those are i mean there are some legacy games i mean pandemic i yeah you would argue is a euro game pandemic legacy is clearly based on what would be perceived as a euro game so yeah uh legacy has changed things i think um just the physical presentation of the games has improved um you know the standard of artwork is massively improved from the 90s you know it used to be you you know if you look back at some of the classics from the old days some of the artwork is shocking um really is because there weren't that many artists working in the field whereas now you have some of the you know some really talented artists working on your you know working on board game design um but in terms of level of design uh I'm not sure what advances really there have been. I suppose, you know, it's like probably deck building was the last, well, there's deck building in legacy games. I can't really think of any other big changes that I've seen that, you know, this still seems to be with Euro games, still using tried and tested mechanics of, you know, set collection, uh, worker placement, so on. So in, in certain respects, I would say things haven't, changed that much um for my own personal feeling uh thing is for me personally for a lot of games i'm quite i'm quite critical of a lot of games when i because when i play games i tend to play games from the point of view as the designer which means i'm always looking to see what the problems are what the faults are so i'm probably not the best person to play games with because i'm usually moaning about something to do with them um but uh yeah, I mean, I think of the, the Euro games that I've enjoyed in the last few years. I think my favorite is still things like Terra Mystica and Stroke Gaia Project, um, which in one sense didn't do anything terribly new, but it just seemed to be what they do, do they do well. Gotcha. Now, let's get a good working definition. Like, in your opinion, you know, we've been saying Euro game this whole time, but like, let's pretend, you know, someone listening to this never even heard of what that means. What is a Euro game? Why is it called Euro versus something else? And, and what are some of like the common like standard things that you would you would expect if someone says, "Hey, this is a Euro game." Like, what what can you expect to be inside that box? Um, yeah, I'm sure somebody tried to define what a Euro game is. Some people don't even like the term Euro game. Um, I I personally have always seen it as, you know, back in the '90s, uh, all I was aware of was American war games. I thought that was the gaming world, um, you know, from Avalon Hill, SPI, Quinto, people like that. And then in the 90s, a friend of mine introduced me to um, these games from Germany. Uh, so this was before Catan. 
And they were completely different because your American style games, you know, they're very long, very complicated games. Uh, and then you suddenly had these games from these German designers, which were very simple, very elegant. Um, and they just, they just seemed so different from anything that was out there. And, and it, it, I suppose, yeah, it was the elegance of them that, that, that struck me at the time, you know, that within a short period of time, you had a game that made you think. Um, whereas previously in that kind of niche, you would have things like Monopoly. Now, Monopoly is just a game of luck and it goes on far too long. But there, here you, you've got these games which are suitable for families, but they make you think a bit more. Uh, and they just use, you know, very simple set of rules. So I suppose that would be, for me, the definition of a Euro game. Um, trying to think of some examples of the early ones. I know I think there was an early Reiner Knizia game. I think it was one of the first ones I tried. I think it was, uh, I think it might have been Res Publica. Um, and then you had games like Settlers of Catan that came along in 1995. And that, that really transformed the Euro game field because before then Euro games had been very simple and, Settlers at the time was perceived as quite a complicated Euro game. I mean, we wouldn't see it that way now, but at the time it was felt to be more, you know, another layer of complexity. Um, and yeah, that just then led to a widening or, you know, widening of the field of Euro games. Um, but I suppose, yeah, Euro games, there's always a simple conceit at the middle of them. You know, they're just a simple core and that, that's what influenced me in my design in that I love the simplicity of Euro games, but I also like the detail, the theme of Ameritrash games, the American style games. And so for me, um, from an early stage, I felt I wanted to kind of mix the two to use simple mechanics to tell more complex stories. So, yeah, that, that, I don't know if that comes across as a definition of a Euro game. Um, yeah, gotcha. Now, it's kind of funny that you say that Euro games were, were simple because nowadays I feel like if someone says this is a Euro game, the immediate thought is, oh, this this has a lot going on. And this is probably going to take at least 90 minutes, maybe two hours to play. And it, there's kind of like this, this stereotype of what Euros have become. And, and so would you say that Euros have just in general gotten a lot more complicated over the years? Um, some have. Yes, some definitely have. There is... Maybe that's why I have a problem with some of these more modern Euros because you you do seem to be getting some games that seem to be complicated for the sake of complexity. Um, and that, for me, is a movement away from what a Euro game should be about. Um, but, you know, it, there's obviously a market for those games out there because, you know, they, they do sell. Um but yeah, some of the more modern Euro games, it feels to me like it's almost like you're learning an arcane computer language, um, you know, because they don't seem to be as, you know, connected with their theme. But yeah, I'm, in, in a sense, I don't try to think of some good examples, um, but without being critical of games. But yeah, I, I take what you mean there. There are some... Euro game. I'm trying to think, yeah, because I played Pipeline recently, which I suppose is kind of a, a Euro game. And that was a real head scratcher because you've got lots of different moving parts and you've got to connect these pipes together and so on like that. Yeah, that and that that 
that was a brain burner. Um, trying to think of other other games I played recently, which I know that you know, Vital Acerda, his games I think are a good example of Euro games that kind of go to that next level uh, of complexity. Um, trying to think, I mean, I uh, and I kind of yeah, because I played yeah, I played of his, I played on Mars. Uh, Kanban and I did play to CO2. I, I always find those games that for me they're just a bit too complex because I like to know when I'm playing a game right from the beginning where the game's going, how, how you know what is it I'm trying to do and how I can do that. And very often with these kind of modern Euros, you've got no idea. Even at the end of the game, I'm thinking I've still got no idea how to do things, which I, which I find frustrating. Um, but as I say, there seems to be a market for those kind of games. Um, yeah, like you said, they continue to sell. They continue to yeah. do really well on Kickstarter when they come up. So it's it's interesting. I, I guess as as like you're saying earlier, as the internet has expanded and the number of gamers have, have expanded, uh, the the spectrum of what you can put out there in the marketplace and still be successful has expanded. And so I think it's really interesting to kind of think through, you know, what a euro is and now how how people are approaching it from different angles. And some people are getting a little bit simpler, and then some people are getting way more complicated and complex. But mm. yet, you know, you can still be successful on both sides. It's very interesting. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It, it, I mean, I don't know, you know, 10 years ago, I don't, you know, you wouldn't have been able to publish Gloomhaven. Now it can be number one game on the geek, and it sells really well. Um, and it, it seems to me that the market's been transformed by an influx of people, I think, that have come from video gaming. I've got no hard evidence of this, but it, it feels like a lot of people who are used to playing long, complex video games have come into the hobby and they're quite happy to play longer games. They're quite happy to play campaign games, uh, more complex games, because they're used to that. Um, where it used to be with the old-style German games, they were designed for the family market, you know, and so therefore they had to be simple. But now you can have these games that are pretty complex, pretty detailed, because you've got bright, 20, 30-year-olds playing them who who can cope with these extra levels of complexity. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm reminded, strangely enough, of Rowdy Roddy Piper, the WWE or WWF wrestler from back in the day. And one time he said, just when they think they have all the answers, I change the questions. And I feel like there's a lot of designers, Isaac Childers, who you just mentioned being one of those, who are doing some amazing things in that they're they're changing the questions. They're they're mm. showing that you can do different things. You know, Isaac made a dungeon crawler slash Euro game. You know, mm. like there's so many things that are going on that feel very Euro in style, but yet at the same time, you're running through a through all these dungeons and you're killing goblins and all this, you know, fantasy kind of stuff. And I feel like there's there's so many interesting avenues now because of Kickstarter, because there's so many new ideas and, and diverse people coming in to the hobby that that lots of cool things are happening that are really changing the questions. And, uh, and so let, let's kind of keep traveling down that as far as like the, the market. What do you think attracts so many people to these styles of games? If you look on Board Game Geek, and now it's not necessarily the best representation of the gaming market as far as things go, but it, it's what we got. And if you look at the top 20, the top 100, a lot of games in that top 100 are Euro style games. And so what do you think it is about these games that draws people in and they keep buying them, keep playing them? Good question. I don't really know. Um, is the honest answer to that. Um, I mean, let's, I mean, let's look at, yeah, looking at the games in the top 10, I mean, they're not all Euro games. I mean, I wouldn't, I would, 
So, yeah, again, it's like Twilight Imperium. The latest editions of Twilight Imperium are actually based on Puerto Rico. So you could argue that, yeah, your Ameritrash games have become infected with this kind of Euroism. Um, and, and it's possibly because the design is tighter, that, 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 you know, that these games have a more solidly designed core that people can latch on to. Um, that might help with it. But again, Gloomhaven, yeah, I mean, Gloomhaven, yeah, you've kind of got your, your core card system. So it's not just a straightforward dice chucker thing. Um, as you say, yeah, you've got this interesting mix of a Euro game with a, an Ameritrash style game. And then maybe it is, yeah, that having that, those solid core mechanisms that everything else is hung off, which is, is, is maybe the thing that is attractive to people. Um, then I, I think there's also a case where success breeds success in that those games that can attract some attention continue to attract more and more attention. Because there are a lot of good games out there, you know, very well-designed games, very good games, that can sync without trace because they don't get that initial buzz. And, and also, I think there are some games that, for me personally, I don't think are great, which can do really well because they do attract a lot of attention, and it's like success breeds success. Um, so... But I, you know, if there was a magic formula for deciding how, you know, making a game successful, then somebody would have discovered it already and be making a fortune. Um, the reality <laughs> industry is companies put out games, they've got no idea what's going to work. They've got no idea what's going to be successful. And just because, you know, Gloomhaven has been really successful, but you can't then put out another Gloomhaven or something like it because it suffers by comparison in the same way that, Catan, there's never been a game similar to Catan that's done as well as Catan. Yeah, I think another thing to think about is that so many Euro games, because they're not super luck driven or, or dice driven, that the players maybe have a, a better sense of, of feeling clever and they get to create these card combos or they get to, to set up turns. You know, I, I get to set up a turn right now that's going to pay dividends three or four turns down the road and there's some planning and, and I pull something off. And so when I win the game, it's because mm. I won the game. It wasn't because the dice gods you know, showed favor on me and I happened to roll 20s and you rolled ones. Uh, it's because I had a plan and I implemented the plan and I chose a better path. I had a better strategy. And so it gives people the opportunity to feel smart and to to beat their friends or their family members, the other people at the table and to feel like, yeah, I won. I'm the one that you know, chose this strategy and, and did this. And so I feel like that's another thing is people get to feel clever and, and that's something that draws people in. Yes, yeah, I hope possibly so. It, it, it works for some people and not others. This is, this is the, the, the interesting thing about why some, so many of these games, probably because for some people, they do like the game where it's luck because they, they might not be that good at playing games and they don't want to be made to feel stupid. I, I mean, I certainly know when I go to one of my local games club, there's a, some people there, it's like, yeah, you you don't want to play a game above a certain level of complexity because they don't enjoy it. But other people love that. You know, other people uh, relish that. So, and I think things like The Geek have given those people who enjoy those more complex games an arena for them to discuss it, discuss those things in, which maybe has uh, led to those games becoming more successful. But yeah, it's certainly, I think you're absolutely right. Feeling you are in control of your fate is a great thing in a game. And I know, I mean, this is why I enjoy games like Terra Mystica, because it is very much up to you how you do. Um, 
not, you know, I mean, there's a little bit of our interaction, but it's generally up to you to play the game well in an efficient manner. Of course, that leads to the other criticism that maybe it's gone too far where some games do feel like multiplayer solitaire because you don't have any player interaction. That, that's the downside of that, you know, that, that the problem with player interaction is it does introduce chaos. It does introduce a kind of form of luck um, where you may be at the mercy of other players' actions. Um, but in general, yes, uh, being able to feel clever about what you've done is definitely an attractive feature of these games. Yeah, absolutely. All right, I want to switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about theme. I saw a an acronym years ago, and it was J-A-S-E, or JASE, and it stands for Just Another Soulless Euro. And it was a way that some reviewers will refer to games that are in this kind of Euro genre that the theme is just pasted on. There's no soul. It's really just a mechanism playing itself out. And that, how that was a criticism. Now, I think some people really enjoy that. They don't need theme. They just want to get in there and, and play the game and see how it works and all that. But when it comes to theme, and you mentioned early on that you really like creating thematic games that have these different things going on and kind of injecting that in there. So tell me your thoughts on theme and how to connect the theme to these really elegant, really fun mechanisms of the Euro game. I mean, that's a pretty difficult thing to do. I mean, I, I know that a lot of game designers, they generally, you know, they'll start with mechanics and then they'll apply a theme and that sticks out like a sore thumb and that, that generally what leads to your Jace style game. Um, the problem, I mean, I always, nearly always start with a theme and then look for mechanics to go with that. The, the problem is you don't know which mechanics are going to work. So it's actually quite a difficult way to approach design because you know what the problem is, but you don't always know what the solution is. And it's not always an obvious solution. So to be able to describe how I do that is like, well, the reality is I don't actually know. All I know is that you have to do a lot of reading. You have to do a lot of research. You have to know what story it is you're trying to tell. And then somehow that leads to coming up with mechanics that allows you to tell that story. Um, and, you know, there, there, I mean, and then there are certain principles I try and follow, you know, that if, you know, you try and make things, you know, if you can make things feel intuitive, I think it helps people learn the game better. Um, and I think that's a problem I've had with some games recently where they lack that intuitiveness because they've got elements within the game that relate to the real world, but the way they work in the game isn't the same way as they work in the real world. Um, an example of that I can think of, I think it's Scythe. I've only played Scythe twice, and it's quite a while ago, so I don't remember all the details. But I think one of the missed opportunities in that is you have the resource of oil. But oil doesn't work as energy. It just works as another resource. It's functionally interchangeable with we other stuff. I mean, and I may be wrong on this, but it just felt to me at the time, it's like, no, oil is about movement. Oil is about energy because that's what it is. And therefore, within the game, that's what it should be used for. But it wasn't. It seemed to me a missed opportunity. So, it, it, you know, trying to make a game more thematic is thinking through very clearly what are the elements within this game? How do they work in the real world? How can I make that so within what is an abstract set of rules? Um, and then that, that, that's tough. That can be pretty tough. Um, not always easy to do. Uh, 
and yeah, I feel a lot of these kind of Euro games, they, they miss that because they are very abstract. Um, I mean, it's like uh, Trail. It's you know, another popular game, and it's one that I, I never really got into because it's like, well, you've got different types of cows. And as far as I'm aware, you know, and they're important within the game, and I'm kind of thinking, yeah, they're just one type of cow. It was the cow that could walk a long way without losing a lot of meat. You know, there wasn't, they didn't have different breeds of cows as far as I'm aware. But, and I can see that that was put in for game reasons, not for thematic reasons. So you, you see a lot of these games that they profess to have a theme, but you look closely and it's like, no, the mechanics don't match the theme. They, they really don't. But people seem to enjoy them anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. And, and I agree. Uh, I find myself, when I'm playing a game that's really good, I find myself saying the phrase, ooh, that makes sense. As someone hmm. is explaining the game or they're kind of explaining the rules and how this works, it's kind of like what you're talking about with oil. And they say, all right, you can you can discard oil to move an extra space. And it's like, oh, hmm. that makes sense. And, hmm. and I feel like maybe that can, it's, it's a little bit of a gut feeling. And I don't know that there's some kind of magical spreadsheet that you can plug your game mechanisms or game into and they go, oh, OK, this makes sense. But I feel like maybe a lot of playtesting and just as you think through does this make sense if I yes. uh, if I have oil for it to be used for movement or whatever and just kind of use that as a filter as you're creating mechanisms? Is that fair mm-hmm. to say? Yep. Yeah, so I'm working on a game at the moment on um, doing a game on Wales, Welsh history, set in the 19th century. And you've got different resources in the game. Uh, you've got coal, iron, copper, slate, and gold because these are all things that came from Wales. And it's like, so slate, is used for building because slate is a building material. You know, they made houses out of slate. Uh, copper used to build ships because you can argue, you know, ships had copper bottoms because that's how you protect it from barnacles. Um, you you uh, Steel, you used to make churches because Welsh churches, a lot of them were made out of metal uh, rather than stone. So it's trying to, you know, so it's trying to keep thematic connections. And I've even managed to... I also wanted there to be castles in the game. Now, it's the 19th century, and nobody built castles in the 19th century. So that was the bit I was really struggling with. Until I came across an account, and this is why you should do research, until I came across an account where certain rich industrialists were using their money uh, to renovate castles, because a lot of these castles were gone to rack and ruin, because there was no tourism industry in the 19th century. So a lot of these castles were just falling into ruin. I thought... Ah, that's my inn. That's a thematic inn. So rather than building the castle, what you're doing is you're restoring it. And that makes thematic sense because that actually happened. So that is kind of an example of, you know, my approach to design. Having said that, I mean, the game is still clearly clearly a Euro game. I've designed it to be a a pretty simple um, kind of economic Euro game. It's kind of a follow-up to Tinner's Trail. Uh, But that, that would be an example of how you try and tie resources to the theme. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you have any recommendations as far as as research? Do you find yourself going back to similar sources, whether it's Wikipedia or maybe something a little bit more academic? Any advice on that? Sometimes it's interesting reading around. So it really depends what the theme is. I mean, uh, I, I was struggling. I wanted to design a game. There's a game I did, Automobile. Uh, and I wanted to do a game about the car industry. And I, I knew I wanted, basically, I wanted pretty pictures of cars in it. And I started off, I started collecting lots of books about cars and found myself getting absolutely nowhere. Because, yes, I had lots of pretty pictures of cars and it would describe these cars in detail, but it told me absolutely nothing 
about how the car industry worked. So then I thought, okay, why don't I read biographies of people in the car industry? So then I went away and read biographies on Henry Ford and Chrysler uh, and people like that. And then that was the end that I did. It's like, okay, now I've got a better idea of how the actual car industry works because I'm reading about the personalities involved in that. So that was coming at things from a different angle. So very much depends on the theme, but sometimes you kind of have to, if you find you're getting nowhere with your primary research, sometimes come at things from a different angle and see how that works. But I always think, you know, you just got to read as much as possible um, until you've got a feeling for theme. Another example of that is uh, I've been working on a game about music. It's kind of a fantasy music mashup thing, uh, Monster Rock. And I designed the first version years ago, and I did no research for it whatsoever. I just thought, yeah, we're just going to have fantasy rock bands going around uh, this fantasy world playing gigs and so on. And it was okay. It worked at a certain level, but it wasn't great. And then I left it for a while, and then I came back to it recently and thought, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd still like to do that. But I thought, this time I'm going to do the reading. And I just went off and I read books on you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, stuff like that. Um, and that gave me a different in because what the, that showed me is that certainly rock music in the 1960s, there was a strong political element to it. And that was what was missing from the game I worked on. It's like, yeah, it's not just about the music. The 1960s was a period of revolution as well. So that, that the now, now this particular game, when I, when I finished designing it, it's not just about playing music. It's also about fermenting a revolution to, you know, knock the government down, um, which, which I say was a serious concern in the 1960s. And people like, um, you know, the, the government was highly worried about these revolutionary rock stars. Like Jimi Hendrix apparently was the top of the FBI list to re be removed in case of revolution since he was a, you know, potential leader of the black community. Um, so, yeah, that, that could give me a different way into the theme. So, yeah, uh, read. That's the key thing. Yeah, and that's super interesting. And it's it sounds like common sense, but I feel like more designers, especially nowadays, aren't taking that path. Uh, and I feel like the their designs are worse off because of it. not that they're making bad games, but that they're missing out on so many little details that would really just bring the theme to life and little extras mm. that you could have uh, cards. And even if it's just flavor text, and even if it's yes. just little things that show up in the rule book or on the back of the box or in the artwork, it's, it's those little touches that can help a game go from good to great. And so I think that's, that's excellent advice is really just commit yourself to diving into the reading and whether it's biographies or uh, how-to manuals or whatever it is that you're, mm. you're finding those opportunities. Now, when it comes to theme, I feel like we have to talk about cities. It seems like every other Euro game is, is based on a town, based on some city somewhere in some random place in the world that very few people have been to, or maybe it's you know a tourist trap. But either way, what is it about cities that keep bringing designers in? And I feel like we're going to run out of cities before too long. You just can't even, all, all the games have been made. And so like, why is that? I don't know. I mean, I, I always feel that um, building things is an inherently... Uh, popular, you know, it feels good. I was, this, somebody asked me this question about train games, for instance. I always feel, it always feels good to build things. It, it, people like living in an expanding universe. They like to be able to put buildings down or put tracks down or put roads down. They want to see things grow. 
that's more satisfying than seeing things shrink, seeing things fall apart. And I suppose in city games, you get to, you get to build stuff. That feels good. Um, you know, you get to see, it's like Carcassonne, which, you know, uh, you'd argue is a city building game, obviously based on the city of Carcassonne. Or, you know, it's, you know, it's great seeing that map uh, be created. Um, and I suppose that, that, yeah, it is mostly that building thing. I mean, it's how thematic they are. I, I don't know. I'm trying to not play. Very often I think sometimes uh, it does feel like an excuse for a bunch of Euro mechanisms just to be strung together and without a strong connection with the theme. Um, but, you know, it still seems to be a popular thing. But, yeah, maybe we do run out of cities at some point or maybe have to <laughs> retread some of them. Right. Carcassonne 2 uh, or something yeah. like that. Uh, but I feel like what you just said goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning of the show as far as what attracts people to these games. And the building aspect has to be part of it, right? Where you start off mm. with not much. You've got your little farmhouse. You've got your little burgeoning town. And then by the, mm. end, the end of the game, you have this big farm. You have a, a city. You've put all these cards into play or put mm. all these, these colonies on different planets or whatever it is. And, and you've built up. And I feel like, yeah, that definitely kind of calls out to our innate uh, being, right? There's something deep down inside of humans, like, like you're saying, like we like to build things. We like to go from nothing to something over the mm. course of, of time. So that makes sense. Now let's talk about balance. I feel like Euro games, just the stereotype is that balance is much more important than a, a game where you're chucking a lot of dice and, and people give you a little bit more of a pass on, on balance with super lucky games and luck driven games. But with the Euro game, it's going to be hard to, to have a super obviously unbalanced game and people really enjoy it. If, if one strategy is obviously better than all the others, then your game's not mm. going to do very well. And so how do you balance these games? And like, what's your personal process? Like, how do you figure out the balance? I think there must be some game designers who probably, it's like Randy Knizia, I suspect he, because he's a mathematician, I think he, he works out the balance mathematically, you know, using probably quite complicated um, algorithms and whatnot. I just do it by feel. They're just certain, certain things. That, balance is as hard as you want to make it. You know that um, you can balance a game very easily by just making sure players have access to the same resources. And very often, the only point of imbalance there becomes player order, and that's fairly easy to balance by. You know, if it is an issue, by giving those players who go later in player order um, extra resources. Um, Balance becomes more problematic when you have uh, asymmetrical powers, um, and that 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 can be a nightmare. Balancing things like that, um, but again, it depends specifically how your mechanisms work. Um, and it's like there's a game I'm working on called Bloodstones, which I'm hoping to put on Kickstarter, and that uses asymmetrical uh, factions, and I have no idea if it's balanced or not. Um, and it probably isn't. But the thing is, because you can have different factions in play and because you can have different maps, it doesn't matter because different maps will benefit different factions in different ways. So the map, one map might make one particular faction weaker and another faction stronger. But because you're not playing on the same map each time, it doesn't matter. And also, you know, there's player agency in that, 
what I'm finding, you, you know, that each, each faction has its own strengths and weaknesses and players themselves by good play can overcome weaknesses with those factions. Um, and it's also the case with that because I know it's not balanced. That can also be a positive because it's like, I know that one of the factions is harder to play than the others. And well, that's fine. It's like, okay. So, and it says in the rules, you know, okay. You know, if you're playing with a group of people and somebody's new to the game, don't give them this faction because it's the hardest one to play, you know, given one of the easier factions to play. So you, you can use imbalance to actually help a design. Um, but where imbalance does become an issue, and this is, although as much as I like Gaia Project, um, that is a problem with that in that you just know that certain races are stronger than others in certain situations. And because the game is so tightly designed, it can be difficult to overcome um, a weakness in your starting position or a weakness in the particular faction you've got. But yeah, most of it is by, you do by feel. You just, it's what feels right. Yeah, definitely. And like you said, it, it's really the perception of balance more than anything because mm. the game could be perfectly balanced, but if people don't feel that it is, then mm. it, it's not, at least not in the yeah. reviews. And so that's uh, always something to to keep in mm. mind. Now, I want to I talk about your personal process for creating games, just kind of start to finish and, and not necessarily the huge version, but just kind of bit by bit. And so let's start off talking about ideas. Where do you find yourself getting ideas from? You mentioned that you read a lot. And so I'm assuming, you know, ideas come from there a good bit, but just in general, what, what is it about a certain idea that'll pop in your brain and you'll go, Hmm, there needs to be a game about that. Um, it's certainly the case that, yeah, uh, you can get your game ideas from really unusual places. I, th I suppose what the stage I am at, because I've done a lot of games, um, you kind of feel, yeah, certain themes, yeah, I've done that, don't need to do that again. So you, you're always looking for unusual themes. So I'll, I'll give you an example of one theme, and it's it was basically a throwaway line in a book. Um, so it's this book that I picked up from the library a number of years ago, and it was about the, it's kind of one of these weird Eric von Daniken-style books about uh you know, uh, unusual occurrences. But it was talking about the rebuilding of London after the Great Fire of London. Uh, and it mentioned this guy called Nicholas Hawksmore, who, uh, and the, the book was kind of examining whether this architect who helped rebuild London had built these uh, a set of churches in a particular way such that they would open up a portal to the spirit world. So that was in, that was what was in the book. I mean, it's, obviously complete bunkum, but I thought that could be a really good basis for a game. The idea of opening up uh, a portal to a spirit world. So now you've got a mixing of spirits with real historical people. And I mean, that's something, you know, I've touched on before with things like a study in Emerald where you're mixing historical characters with uh, Lovecraftian monsters. Uh, and that's kind of something I'm, interested in pursuing more because I think it's interesting having a game that is obviously grounded in our own reality where you've got real historical people, a real historical setting, but then you've added this fantasy element, which just makes it more interesting. It just makes it more fun to see the, the, these characters in a different situation. And so that idea just simply came from one line in a book. 
and just got spun out into a bigger idea. Um, uh, things like automobile that I, I get a lot of my inspiration wandering around bookshops. Um, you know, that was coming across a book of nicely illustrated cars. Studying Emerald itself was actually uh, inspired by a book on anarchism, history of anarchism, which I thought, well, there's got to be a game there. But I didn't want to do a game just about straight history of anarchism because it involves basically blowing up lots of rich people. And that doesn't play well in America because you seem to like your rich people over there. So therefore, I swapped out the rich people for uh, Cthulhu monsters and people are quite happy to blow them up because, I don't know, maybe they're different. Um, so, yeah, you, you, and, and books are a good source of inspiration. Yeah, I, uh, I heard a quote one time where a guy said, uh, there are no poor people in America. There's only temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And yes. so uh, yeah. I think that might be part of the culture. <laughs> yeah. All right, so you've got your ideas, right? Mm. You've got your themes that are coming from books in different uh, areas of life. And now it's time to start figuring out mechanisms that are going to go along with that. Do you have like a big notebook full of ideas for ne- mechanisms that you can kind of come back to? Or tell me your process of, of coming up <sighs> with mechanisms that really fit into these ideas no i don't i don't i used to do notes i don't do notes so much anymore i don't know i do most of my work in my head um walking's good i find you go for a walk you have ideas i just i do it mostly in my head but it's like the the um i think the key thing is deciding what feel you want so if i go back to the example that i mean the hawk small game i mean i've not started properly designing it but i already know what feel i want um, because I want the feeling because it it's set it's, it's actually going to be set in the 18th century, um, even though the Great Fire of London is the 17th. The idea being that this guy has disappeared into the spirit world and he comes back about 100 years later with his spirit pals who then inhabit bodies of humans, uh, and then you have this group of people whose job it is to find out who's been taken over by a spirit because these spirits are up to no good. And I kind of think I want it to be a dance. I want you, it's going to be asymmetrical. So you've got baddies who are these humans who've been taken over by spirits. And then you've got these other people who are trying to track them down, but they're having to do it uh, secretly because if they're found, you know, the spirits will just kill them. So that they, they, they have to be very careful about how to approach it. So the feeling I want to get in the game is this some kind of dance where it's just it's not an out-and-out out game about combat. It's a game about positioning. It's a game about finding information about the other person. It's a game of bluff. Um, that's the feeling I want to get into the game. How What the mechanic, mechanics will be, I don't know yet, but I do know that's how I want the game to feel. Um, I'm mean, give, give you another example of this. I mean, this is a game that will probably never be published, but I designed a, a Harry Potter game uh, a number of years ago just for the hell of it. And having, because I'd never read the Harry Potter books before, but I just got down and read all, I think I read all of the books in about a couple of months and had the game designed and done in a, from beginning to end, it was about three months. And in that, the key thing I got from the books was the fact that in all of the books, nobody know, there's always a character that nobody knows their loyalty, whether they're good or evil. And I thought, well, that's what I want to be the game based around. And so it, it's a secret um, identity game where 
you're either uh, one of the good guys, you know, you're either uh, Order of Phoenix or you're a Death Eater, or you can be the third faction, which is Ministry of Magic. But it's all about secret identities. And But what, you, what you're doing is you're recruiting uh, people to your side, and that's giving information away. So if I'm actively trying to recruit Harry Potter, then that would seem to indicate that I'm Order of Phoenix because that would be good for me. But on the other hand, I might be a Death Eater trying to recruit Harry Potter so that I, you know, he's not used in the ensuing battle. So that game is all about trying to uh, mislead other people because you win on sides. There's no individual winner. At the end of the game, you reveal who you are and you win as a team, but you don't know who else is on your team. And so for me, that worked at doing what the books do, which is create this uncertainty. As you know, there's always those characters like, Snape being the main one, it's like, you're never sure, is he a good guy or a bad guy? Um, and so, yeah, I think it's very important when you're designing a game is decide what feeling do you want to create in players? Um, and then trying to find mechanics to do that. Very cool. It's, it's really interesting to kind of get a, a behind the scenes look at your personal process and kind of how your brain works. Now, do you have any like anecdotes for games that are out there on the market, especially any of your, your really popular ones, uh, Brass or London or any of your train games where the mechanism just clicked and you're like, oh, that's good. Mm, that makes sense. Like any little stories like that? Um, ooh, uh, I think a, f- a few acres of snow, even though I didn't, you know, it involves a deck building mechanism and I didn't invent deck building, obviously. Um, but that was a mechanism that, because when I first started designing that, it, it, was, it was a friend of mine who suggested the theme. I hadn't considered it myself, but he said it might be an interesting war to cover. And I had no, I wasn't, I didn't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to use deck building to do this. It's like, no, I did the reading. I thought, okay, so I've got an idea of how, you know, the, the, the war goes. And then because I'd recently played Dominion, I thought maybe deck building will help me with this. And it was a perfect mechanism for dealing with the fact that the armies at the time were a long way from home. You know, the French and the British are a long way from home. So when they asked for stuff, they had no idea when it was going to turn up. And that, that, that's what deck building is. It's like, yeah, I'm going to draft this card. It's going to go in my discard pile. At some point, I will see it. I just don't know when I'm going to see it. And, and that, that was a nice fit. Other uh, examples of... That, um, it's like, again, with automobile, one of the key mechanics I want to get in that is that you have to keep upgrading your plant. So in that game, um, your older plant just becomes more and more inefficient. Again, games cubes, and that that felt like a neat mechanic for uh, reflecting that. Um, Struggle of Empires is another example. That, That is a game where I wanted to emphasize the fact that it, the, 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 that period of time, again, it's 18th century warfare, it was all about who you're allied with. And so the game mechanics themselves are pretty simple. The key thing is who you're going to ally with, and the whole game is structured around an alliance mechanic where you get to bid to determine how the alliance will work, and it's how much are you willing to spend to you know, be in the, you know, have the right people on your side. And what's interesting with A Struggle of Empires is the nice dynamic is very often you want to be allied with your enemies and you want to be at war with your friends because 
if you're at war with your friends, then you're not going to be attacking each other much. And because it's a hard alliance system, if you're allied with your enemies, they can't attack you. That, that, that kind of introduces an interesting dynamic, but with a very pretty simple system. Um, so, yeah, those are some examples. Yeah, very cool. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about the, the next stage in playtesting. Tell me about your process. What are you looking for when you're playtesting a game? What are maybe some tri- tips and tricks you've kind of picked up over the Ooh. years as far as playtesting a Euro? You've got to have a good crew of playtesters. And you, you've got no real control over that. You either have good playtesters or you don't because you, 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 you know, you, you, you've got to be, you know, getting playtests alone could be a different one because playtesting, you know, you're asking somebody to play a game that might not work. And you're taking up valuable gaming time. Um, you know, they could be playing something that's already published that works perfectly fine. So um, certainly in the early days, it was always quite hard asking people if they'd be willing to play test a game. I think it's got easier now. Uh, you know, people are more willing to play test. I think the thing is, the process I use is I'm lucky in that I've got access to different groups. So there's either a group of meets in Brisbane, which is all about playtesting. It's a bunch of aspiring game designers, and all they do is playtest. So, you know, you go along there, you take whatever you're working on, um, people playtest each other's, other's games. And that, that, that makes it very easy because you're, you're not strong-arming somebody in the playing game. And what, I've, what generally with my process, with the first draft of a game, I prefer to do it with people who know what they're getting into because the game probably won't work. So therefore I use those play, you know, those, those people who know it's a play test, know there's a good chance the game won't work, but they're happy to do it anyway. So first draft I go to them. And then when the game is in development, you know, when I've developed the game further, then I'm happy to play it with another group. So it's like another group I go to, which is more general lighter game. It's a, it's a local university. Now there I wouldn't use, I wouldn't go there with a the first draft game. Uh, there, I, that, that I use that group for the kind of finishing off for the last 10%, the polishing period. So I suppose it's identifying your groups and working out where they, they fit in that line. Um, another thing I, is it's interesting with some, certain playtests. Some playtesters always feel the need to suggest rule changes. And a good playtester doesn't need to do that. A good, all a good playtester needs to do point out what the issues are. Say, these are the things that I think work, and these are the things that I don't think they work. Playtesters are not there to come up with ideas. I mean, they can throw ideas out there, but generally I found that the ideas thrown out by playtesters um, don't work. It's not to denigrate them, but very often when you're designing a game, you know, you look at the criticism, and sometimes rather than tweaking, you go back and you start the game again from scratch. So it's like the, the Welsh game that I mentioned earlier. The first version of the game was an absolute disaster. Um, but rather than tweaking it and just adjusting this a bit and just now about the, you know, I'm just going to go back to the drawing board and I'm just going to redesign the whole thing from scratch. Um, and sometimes that's what you need to do. So, um, so yes, you are taking on board what the playtesters are saying, but you should take on how they feel about the game and you know what they see as the issues rather than taking on board what they see as the solutions. You as the designer are the person responsible for solving the problem, not them. 
Yeah, I completely, completely agree with that. I've had several other designers uh, on this podcast who have said almost verbatim the exact mm-hmm. same thing. Playtesters are very good, typically, with coming up with the problems. Very bad, typically, at coming up with the solutions. All right, yep. so we've got playtesting going on. Now it's time to kind of make some tweaks and changes. The word elegant came up mm-hmm. earlier in the interview. And so what does it look like to now take your, your playtest information, all the data that you've been gathering and take it, you know, apply it to the design, tweak some things, and then find uh, an elegant form, an elegant version of your game. Actually, first of all, explain what elegant means in this context, and then how in the world do you design a game that is elegant? I, I was kind of saying what you're aiming for with the game design is create the maximum effect for the minimum number of rules. So again, this is something I, I when I give talks on game design, if you can have five rules that lead to 10 effects, then you've got an elegant game because you've got a reduced instruction set, but you still have a lot of different outcomes. Effectively, what you're looking for is some form of emergent behavior. Uh, and that's a difficult thing to do because, uh, and you, you can kind of see it with some game designs where it's a one-to-one thing. It's like, you know, the game designer wants this effect, so they have that rule. You, you very often see this with fantasy flight games. I always feel that, they're the least elegantly designed games ever because it tends to be a one-to-one relationship between rule and effect. So you have a lot of rules to create those number of effects, those number of results. Whereas in an elegant game, elegant game, you should have, as I say, you should have this emergent behavior where you have the smallest rule set possible and those rules should be designed so that they interact in a way that they create uh, an interesting, more complex effect in, in the way that, you know, chess does. You know, chess, the rules are simple, but the game is frightening complex. Go is another good example of that. And that, that's what you should be aiming for. Um, and so the development process should be one of stripping rules out. If things are getting simpler, you know, if, you, if you're losing rules, and this is a good thing, you're on the right track. Um, and I know that it's like going back to the Welsh game, you know, that each version I've come up with has been simpler than the version before it, but I'm still trying to keep the same depth of play. You know, you still got interesting decisions to make. Um, if you are adding rules, then you are going in the wrong direction. You shouldn't you just should not be doing that in a development process. If you're having to put patches on and if you're having to do exceptions and things like that, it's like, no, you need to go back and you need to rethink the core rules because ultimately it's finding those simple core rules that lead to emergent behavior. It's just, you don't know what those rules are. So it's, it's difficult to give more detail than that. It's just, you know it, you know them when you see them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Anything else as far as your process goes you'd like to mm. share with? I think, um, I mean, I, you know, for me, I mean, I do this for a living. And so therefore, any project I work on, I have to be looking at what the likely return is. So sometimes you do games just because you want to do the game. You're not, you're not worried about how commercially successful it's going to be. But if you're, if you're serious about being a full-time game designer, you have to, you have to take into account, well, what's your target market? You know, is there a market for the game you're doing? Um, so it's like at the moment, I'm working on a very simple dungeon crawl card game. Because I feel there is a market there. Uh, I mean, this is a one deck, one use um, game. Because I can see there's already a market there. Because there's there's already a lot of people who are into these kind of escape room games. You know, the play once games. 
but they're, they're very much about finding the code. It's like, yeah, we need to solve this problem to find the code. To do this. And I, I, I've played a couple of them, and it, I, I don't enjoy them so much because I, I'm not, uh, I don't enjoy those kind of puzzles. So, but what I put together is, yeah, this is just more like a straightforward dungeon crawl where the deck of cards creates a map, and then there's another card, set of cards that tells you what what's there, and it's structured so that there is an overarching story that everything makes sense. But the rules themselves are very simple, and um, so you, you're left. You're not worried about how the rules work. It's more a case of you know, do we attack this thing or do we run away? How do we solve this problem? Is is trying to make the role playing come up, you know, maximize the amount of role playing. Now I can see there's a potential market for that because role playing is coming back. But you look at things like D and D, and they're way more complicated now than they used to be when they first started. And I know from talking to some people that they like to do role playing, but they're put off by the complexity of it. And I'm kind of thinking, well, maybe there's a market for this game because this is a way for people to get into role playing where you've got an enjoyable story, but you have a very uh, low set, you know, very simple rules, but you're still telling a story. Um, the challenge is the fact that because you can only play it once, that means you have to produce it at the lowest possible cost. And that, that's the kind of thing I'm looking into now is how financially viable it is because you'd have to produce a lot of these games at a low cost to feed into uh, a market. Um, but that's a case of you know, looking at where there are gaps in the market and thinking, yeah, is there a place for this game? That's why I kind of think, you know, if you look at Kickstarter, things like your medium weight Euro games, they just seem to die on Kickstarter because the, the market's glutted with them. It's like, yeah, they're, they're, they're the kind of designs you shouldn't be doing. And I kind of stay away from those things now. You either go really simple or really complex, you know, really big, or really small. It's kind of those medium weight games. So there's not, not a lot of money there. Yeah, absolutely. Makes a lot of sense. Well, Martin, this has been excellent. Let's, let's talk closing thoughts. Let's say somebody's listening to this show and they've been working on a Euro game. Or maybe, they, maybe they heard you say something in particular and it gave them a really interesting idea. What would you tell them? What would be your encouragement to someone wanting to or, or currently designing a Euro game? I, know, I mean, I, you know, if somebody wants to become a full-time game designer, if someone wants something you want to pursue, it's like anything in life. You have to practice. Uh, I always think the art of game designing is learning what not to do. And you, you learn that by doing. You you learn it by making the mistakes so that the next time you design a game, you know what mistakes to avoid. So you don't waste your time going down certain paths. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do the other. And then it makes it very, it makes it easier to get to where you want to be. So you learn by doing. And if it means you've designed a game and you might really like the game, but if it doesn't quite work, then you need to bin it and you need to move on to the next one. You don't want to get too hung up or whatever you're working on, if it's not quite right. You know, sometimes you just have to move on to another project and then use what you've learned from those earlier projects on, on future ones. I mean, a, a simple example is right back at the beginning, I was trying to do a racing game and I was really struggling. This is back in the 90s. I think it was like the second year, so I just published the Lord's Creation. I was looking to follow up and I wanted to do a stock car racing game and I was really struggling with it and i came up with this mechanism that worked really nicely but it didn't quite make the game work the way i wanted to do but this mechanism on its own i later on used 
in another game, and that became my first published game, Shus. That was my first game published by another company. Um, so you, you never know what you're going to get out of a game design. So it's just a case of, yeah, practice. Um, keep practicing. Awesome. Well, Martin, this has been great. Really appreciate your time. Really appreciate you coming on the show and good luck with all the games. I know you have just a crazy number of games you're work, working on at any given time. So good luck oh, with those and everything. Oh, yes, it's an absolute mountain. <laughs> but so I get to work from home and it's a nice home in a very quiet part of the Sunshine Coast. So I can't complain. Awesome. Thanks again. Okay, yeah, no, it's a pleasure. Thanks for listening. Hosting for the Board Game Design Lab podcast is sponsored by Quartermaster Logistics, the leader in crowdfunding fulfillment and warehousing. Check them out at qmlogistics.com and find all sorts of game design resources, bonus material, and chances to win free games at boardgamedesignlab.com. And until next time, keep designing, keep playtesting, and keep creating great games. Did I mention keep playtesting?